Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery Podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in film, literature, and in popular culture. Hello, everyone. My name is Bruce Markison, and I'm glad to be joined, as always, by producer and co-host Tracy Asteria. We'll tell you about our guest in a moment. First, though, Tracy, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Bruce, on this very dreary day, but definitely kicking it into high gear with the Halloween spirit. So many things are starting to happen around here, different conventions and horror festivals. So that's pretty exciting. How's yeah, everything going for you? Uh, it's great here. It's a real busy ghost tours. And uh, like you said, all these conventions and conferences and various kinds of horror related shows. You know, I started watching the new Mike Flanagan series last night, The Fall of the House of Usher, oh, which nice. has been getting tremendous reviews. So I watched the first episode. I got to say, I only have mixed feelings about it. Um, it. It's intriguing in some ways, and it, it could be very good. But I was a little disappointed. Um, the, the first episode, you know, unveils these characters in this Usher family. It, it's hard to find a single likable character. I mean, they're all pretty reprehensible. So that might make it a little tough for me. And I got to say, the other thing I'm a little disappointed by is... Boy, the language in this is really coarse. Um, these are really foul-mouthed people. And I'm okay with a little bit of profanity in, in watching films and TV series today. I know things are different than they were, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. But it's a little bit overboard. Uh, I don't remember Flanagan's other series being filled with as many expletives. So... I don't know if you've seen any of the episodes yet. It just debuted the other day on Netflix, but I got to say I'm a little leery at this point. I'm not sure about it. Oh, interesting. No, I haven't. Um, I actually forgot that it was being released last week. So I, I'll definitely have to look into it. I haven't heard any feedback from anybody yet on it. So I'm definitely really curious to put my eyes on it. Yeah. Well, it's only one episode, and I'm not, I'm not giving up on it. I'm going to certainly <laughs> stay with it as long as I can, but I'm hoping for better things as it proceeds. I, I love Flanagan a lot, as I know you do as well, so we'll hope for the best. Absolutely. All right, it's, uh, it's time now to get to our main topic of conversation, and today we're privileged to have our first repeat guest on the Ghostly Gallery podcast. Uh, he is historian and author, uh, Dr. Jeff Thompson. Uh, Jeff, congratulations on uh, winning the award as our first repeat guest. It's a trophy made of clay that we'll mail to you. <laughs> we thank you for being uh, with us uh, once again. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Bruce and Tracy. I'm thrilled to be here again. I enjoyed our talk a few weeks ago, and now we're back to talk further about Dan Curtis and Dark Shadows and all of his other productions. Yeah, in our earlier episode, which was episode number eight, we talked to you primarily about the phenomenon of Dark Shadows, which, of course, was created by Dan Curtis, uh, and you went very in-depth on that subject. Today, though, we're going to spend most of our time on some of the other productions uh, from Curtis, who did a number of other uh, productions, uh, especially movies, and he, he delved outside of the horror realm. We're going to stick with horror here. We're primarily going to talk about three of his horror films, 
that are being featured later this month on Sven Gulli's Me TV show. So the schedule coming up is October 21st, a Saturday night. Sven Gulli is going to show The Night Stalker from 1972. That'll air at 8 p.m. as part of a double header on Me TV, double feature. And then the following week, October 28th, uh, it'll be two of Dan Curtis's movies, The Night Strangler. That'll air at 8 p.m. on the 28th. And then it'll be followed by Trilogy of Terror at 10.30 p.m. The Night Strangler, of course, was the very successful follow-up to The Night Stalker. And Trilogy of Terror is one of the great anthology films that came out in 1975. Jeff, let's start by discussing The Night Stalker, 1972. I remember pretty well, even though I was young at the time, it debuted on ABC it was January 11th, 1972. I remember it was so well promoted. We were talking about it in school and there was quite a bit of a buildup to this made for TV movie. And that probably was a factor in, in making it the highest rated television film ever made up until that time. Do you also remember Jeff hearing a lot about this movie just before its debut? Do you remember a lot of that promotion? Yes, I do. I remember seeing promos on ABC uh, uh, heralding uh, a new TV movie that's supposed to be very different and daring and scary, and uh, a few uh, newspaper write-ups. So yes, everyone was um, anticipating and looking forward to The Night Stalker, and you're right, it did get huge ratings, and um, uh, at, at that time, the highest rated made-for-TV movie ever was Brian's song, but then The Night Stalker uh, surpassed that and remained the highest-rated made-for-TV movie for quite a few years and still on a list of the top 15 or, or so is, is still on the list of one of the highest-rated. So it, it was a, a great success for ABC and Dan Curtis and everyone else involved. It was so successful, I I think it really encouraged ABC to do even more of these made-for-TV films, um, many of which were really pretty darn good. They don't always get the credit. There's a tendency to downgrade them because they're television productions and not theatrical releases, but many of them were done quite well, and certainly The Night Stalker was at the top of the list. Jeff, so many great performances here. We, of course, begin with uh, the late Darren McGavin, who was a terrific character actor. But here he takes on the starring role as Carl Kolchak. And in many ways, he makes the movie. um, You you try to think of doing a remake. And there was a remake, uh, I think, on ABC a few years back. And it just didn't work, partly because nobody can match Darren McGavin. He was just that good in the role. Yes, he... uh... Uh, brought his bombastic um, uh, performance uh, to Kolchak and made uh, the character unforgettable. Uh, the character was based on a real person. Uh, the uh, uh, The movie uh, is based on a, a, at that time, unpublished novel called The Kolchak Papers, written by Jeff Rice. He was a newspaper reporter And in the mid-1960s, he worked for the Las Vegas Sun, uh, the newspaper out there, and uh, uh, worked with uh, uh, a reporter named Alan Jarlson, who was known for being loud and cantankerous and and opinionated. 
uh, and their editor was um, uh, someone who was just as uh, irascible and uh, fired Alan Jarlson many, many times, but then brought him back immediately. And um, so a, a lot of the, the uh, quarrels and, and uh, disputes that you see between Kolchak and his editor in the movies and the subsequent TV series are based on things that Al, uh, that uh, Jeff Rice uh, um, witnessed. So uh, in 1970, Jeff Rice wrote a novel which he thought was quite different and groundbreaking. Uh, he, he wrote a novel about the newspaper business and uh, one newspaper man in general, but it was supernatural. It had a vampire in it, a vampire loose in present day Las Vegas. Uh, so in a way it was, quote, realistic because mm. it was set in a, a, a real place in the present time, but brought in this element of, of supernatural horror in that the reporter was not chasing down a, a, just any, um, a, you know, crooked politician or, or businessman, but he was on the trail of a vampire. And of course, no one else in town believed that that was true. Um, uh, Jeff Rice wrote it in mid-1970 and into the fall and says that he uh, he finished it just before midnight on Halloween. <laughs> and at that time, it was never published, but somehow ABC uh, uh, got it and uh, was interested in it and wanted to make a made-for-TV movie out of it. I loved the ABC movie of the week, which ran from 1969 to 75. And that's what you were saying a moment ago. So many wonderful movies of the week uh, were suspense or occult, uh, horror based, and uh, they were, were just joys to watch. And The Night Stalker is one of the most memorable. So um, ABC acquired the rights to uh, the novel, The Kolchak papers and at first wanted to call it the Kolchak tapes because Kolchak talks into a, a cassette tape recorder mm. but uh, but somehow the title was changed to the much more sensational Night Stalker and um, the, uh, uh, the the uh, writer who adapted the novel and used a great uh, deal of it faithfully is Richard Matheson the great fantasy author who wrote mm. I am legend Somewhere in Time, The Incredible Shrinking Man, more than a dozen episodes of The Twilight Zone. Have you read the Jeff Rice novel? Yes. Uh, it came out in paperback um, under the title of The Night Stalker. And uh, uh, it is uh, very similar uh, to the, um, the uh, finished movie. You like it? Um, Yes, uh-huh. Uh, some details that didn't make it into the first movie, Matheson added to the second movie. Um, but uh, Matheson himself said, I had to do very little uh, to the, the book when I adapted it. it. The plot, the story, the atmosphere were all right there. So I just had to uh, write the script. And, um, and Matheson enjoyed uh, doing it. And uh, at first, he and Dan Curtis were rather leery of each other because uh, some years earlier, Curtis had, had put in a bid for uh, the rights to uh, Matheson's World War II 
novel, The Beardless Warriors. It later was made into a movie called The Young Warriors. And um, uh, Matheson thought that the bid was ridiculously low and was uh, sort of offended that, that uh, someone had bid a small amount for his movie. And, and Curtis realized that and so was worried that the two of them would not get along but at their first meeting, it was sort of cool between them for a while. But then as they started talking, they realized that they, they liked the same kinds of movies and books and had the same kind of sense of humor. And so they, they began a, a, a partnership that lasted over six of Dan Curtis's movies. And Matheson wrote uh, scripts for uh, a few others that were not produced. So um, uh, Matheson and Curtis, uh, you know, realized that they had struck gold by starting to work together. Yeah. Now, Curtis was the producer. The director was someone different, though. Yes. John Llewellyn Moxie, who had uh, directed movies in England, uh, Horror Hotel, and then had come to, uh, to America and directed some episodes of Mission Impossible and other TV shows, and uh, later directed the pilot movie of Charlie's Angels. Uh, so at, at this time, Curtis had uh, directed two movies, House of Dark Shadows and Night of Dark Shadows, but for uh, some of his other projects, like The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Jack Palance, uh, he had been producer and someone else had directed uh, Curtis, of course, had a lot of input into the, the um, you know, the making and shaping, uh, um, even directing of the movie. But John Llewellyn Moxie said he and Curtis got along fine, that Curtis was always there on the set offering some input, but never, you know, overstepping. Moxie was the director and he called the shots, but uh, Moxie appreciated Dan Curtis's uh, enthusiasm and energy and um, uh, liked the fact that uh, Curtis was there on the set. And uh, But uh, by the time The Night Strangler came along a year later, Curtis had thought to himself, well, I, why don't I just cut out the middleman? I, I produce and I hire a director and essentially tell the director what I want and what I want him to do. And so why not just cut out that middleman and I'll direct from now on. Mm. But, uh, uh, but you're right. Uh, the Night Stalker was directed by John Llewellyn Moxie, who did a, a terrific job uh, uh, as director. You know, a lot of the attention will go to Darren McGavin and rightly so in many ways he does carry the movie, but the guy who plays the vampire somewhat of a forgotten actor today. He was also terrific. Uh, Barry Atwater who shortly thereafter would develop terminal cancer. He would die about five or six years later. But he plays the vampire, which has a wonderful name of Janos Scorzani, which I think is one of the great vampire names ever. Atwater is incredible here, even though, as I recall, he doesn't speak a single word in the movie. Right, yes, like Christopher Lee in some of the Dracula movies, um, uh, Barry Atwater is a presence, a great presence, but doesn't say anything. Um, yes, you can run across Barry Atwater as uh, in guest starring roles, you know, in many TV shows, but sometimes it's hard to recognize him uh, without the uh, 
uh, horrific makeup uh, and facial contortions that he used for this part. He, uh, uh, he was very, very scary. He, he was feral and bestial in that he didn't talk. So he was more like a, a wild animal and with super strength. You know, uh, many vampire stories don't play up the fact that vampires are very strong when they want to be. Uh, but but this one did, you know, that scene uh, at the swimming pool when the policemen are trying to capture him, but he's he's throwing them around and, and, and you know, uh, jumping over a fence and everything. So so it was it was quite a, a physical role. And then, of course, near the end, when Kolchak is in the vampire's lair and faces off with him, that that's very, very exciting and quite scary. The Night Stalker really is a scary movie even though at some points it's it's uh funny and other points is quote realistic in the way it is made but with the element of vampirism thrown in yeah adwater was a very good actor i remember him doing one of the famous episodes of the twilight zone i believe it was the the monsters uh on maple street Yes, um, the monsters yeah, are due on Maple Street. Are due on Maple right. Street, yeah. that's right. And he plays one of Claude Aikens' neighbors. Um, and, and Claude Aikens uh, has a role in, in The Night Stalker as well, by coincidence. But Atwater was terrific. Uh, another great effort comes from a longtime actor, uh, Simon Oakland, who uh, famously played a role in the Steve McQueen movie Bullet. Uh, but in this movie, he is the boss to Carl Kolchak. He is the irascible Tony Vincenzo. Uh, he's wonderful, too. Oh, yes. And we also remember him as the psychiatrist in the last scene of Psycho. Yeah. Um, but yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, Darren McGavin and Simon Oakland uh, uh, had a great uh, embattled chemistry in uh, these two movies and in the subsequent TV series. They... Uh, they really sparred well and, uh, you know, um, were just said it horribly insulting things to each other. But you got the idea that deep down they did respect each other as fellow newspaper men. Yeah. The movie is really a who's who of 1970s character actors. You've got Carol Lindley, Claude Akins, whom I mentioned, Larry Linville, who, of course, would go on to fame and mash as Frank Burns. Uh, Ralph Meeker, a longtime character actor, they all make uh, appearances in the film, some, some relatively small, but that's one thing that always impressed me about Curtis's movies. He he was always able to lure in really good supporting casts. Yes, uh, and many of those actors were some of his favorite actors whom he remembered from movies and television. Um, like uh, Orson Welles before him and Joe Dante after him, he he uh, uh, gathered you know a, a, a group of actors almost like a repertory company whom he would use over and over in his movies. Um, uh, one of Curtis's favorite actors was Scott Brady, who had done some film noir and western movies and a western TV show and. Uh, he ended up using Scott Brady in six of his productions. Hmm. So uh, yes, the night stalker and especially the night strangler um, have many familiar faces from early television and, and uh, the golden age of Hollywood because Curtis 
uh, liked those people. He he made no bones about that uh, when he talked about Dark Shadows once. He said, I hired people I liked. And hmm. they once they got on the show, they could they could learn their their role and their acting craft and and perfect it. But but I wanted to to work with people I liked. And and that, in a way, is a good philosophy uh, to a certain extent uh, in any employment situation. But um, but, yeah, Curtis um, um, enjoyed uh, having these um uh, vintage, familiar actors around with him, especially if he liked them, and then he would use them over and over, as well as using the Dark Shadows cast in subsequent productions. Jeff, what is your sense when Curtis was on set, especially as a director, how how was he for the actors to deal with? Was he difficult? Was he demanding? Did he generally get along with his actors? What 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 has your research told you in that area? Well, I, I of course, never saw him on uh, the set of any movie. Uh, I, I know people who did work with him, of course, Jim Pearson uh, of Dan Curtis Productions and chair of the Dark Shadows Festival. But uh, from uh, my research and, and listening to interviews from people, um, uh, Curtis could be uh, quite difficult at times. Uh, uh, he would raise his voice and yell at people and um um you know but he it, it was because he wanted to get the shot right he wanted to get the scene right and if that caused him to scream and yell okay uh Polly Bergen who worked on both of his World War II miniseries said Dan could be very difficult but he never was with me I would work with him again any day mm. of the week and and so many other people uh, Peter Graves Roy Thinnis and others said essentially the same thing. You know, uh, you might have to hear some some screaming and yelling and it, there might be tension, <laughs> but the end product was a, a great movie that we have made with Curtis and, and we'd love to do it again. Jeff, one final question on The Night Stalker. I've read that after Curtis saw how well-received the film was, not only in terms of ratings, but the critical appreciation, that he regretted not seeking a theatrical release. Do you know if that's really true? I'm not sure about that. I know Brian's song, as we mentioned before, was uh, re released theatrically, as well as as Matheson's uh, movie Duel with Steven Spielberg. But uh, I'm not sure about the the Night Stalker. Uh, that sounds very plausible. That Curtis might have uh, wished that there could have been a theatrical release. Um, and, um, uh, you know, the, a the ABC movie of the week without commercials was about an hour and 14 or 15 minutes long. And that's the case with The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler a year later. But uh, uh, the, the, the cut that you can find of The Night Strangler is extended. It runs a whole 90 minutes because hmm. uh, uh, scenes were added that were not seen on ABC just like Duel, which, you know, was padded uh, by about 15 minutes to for its theatrical release. And, and that's what you see on the DVDs and Blu-rays today. Yeah. So uh, so I'm not sure about that, but it would have been nice if uh, maybe both films had come out as a double feature, you know, in the mid-1970s, uh, Night Strangler and Night Stalker, uh, both. 
Well, certainly most fans of these movies would say that they uh, they were theatrical quality, that they, they certainly oh, yes. uh, would have merited that kind of, uh, of a release back in the early 70s. So next up is The Night Strangler from 1973. That's going to be aired on the Sven Show on October 28th. It's not as popular as The Night Stalker, but some consider it the equal of the first movie, if not better. And as I recall reading your thoughts and hearing your thoughts on this movie, you really like The Night Strangler. You think it's underrated. Oh, yes, I, I do. Um, uh, Gary Gerani, uh, for one, said uh, uh, back at the time that he thought that The Night Strangler was superior to The Night Stalker. Joe Dante has said that it's one of the best sequels ever made that it's it's you know uh, on par with the original um yes uh, i i think uh you can never top the first movie or essentially the first anything usually but um the the night strangler builds on the first movie um it, it uses the history of what happens in the first one even though it's it essentially follows the same format of Kolchak is in a town and he uncovers a, a supernatural threat and uh, nobody believes him, but he finally uh, defeats the supernatural menace, but then is essentially thrown out of town because of it. So um, yes, the Night Strangler is similar, but it, it has its own strengths and uh, uh all of the ideas and, and germs from the first movie are amplified in the second. You know, the, the quarrels between Kolchak and, and Vincenzo are, are uh, e even louder and, and more drastic. And, um, uh, and, some, and some of the comedic elements go a little farther than the, the first movie. But... Um, Yes, I, I, I believe that the second movie is just as good as, and in some ways maybe a little better, but, uh, but you know, with anything, uh, when something is redone or rebooted, it's hard to top the original, although many shows come very close, such as the 1991 Dark Shadows, uh, which I feel is terrific also. Yeah. But yes, uh, The Night Strangler came out almost exactly one year later, January of 1973. Um, and coincidentally, uh, it aired in prime time on that night, of course. But then in late night, after the, the news, ABC's Wide World of Mystery showed the first part of Dan Curtis's two-part adaptation of Frankenstein. Hmm. Curtis produced, but not directed. So, so that was Dan Curtis night on ABC all night long. Wow. But um, uh, because The Night Stalker had been such a, a huge hit and so uh, innovative, ABC wanted a follow-up. And so Curtis and Matheson were, were game. They, they both wanted to, to do something again with the Kolchak character, only this time Curtis decided he wanted to direct. And but the problem was, well, what do we do? We've done a vampire, which to to Curtis was the scariest monster. Uh, what 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 can we do? What can who can what can the monster be this time? And uh, Matheson at first decided, well, um, let let's let Kolchak meet Jack the Ripper, who is still alive. 
uh, and uh, Matheson was good friends with another of the greatest fantasy horror writers of the 20th century, Robert Bloch, who wrote Psycho. And Robert Bloch was a, a, a great enthusiast uh, of an expert on Jack the Ripper and had used a Ripper type motif in, in many of his short stories and, and novels, Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, a short story and others, and even Bloch's uh, Star Trek episode, Wolf in the Fold, is, is about a Ripper-like killer. So Matheson called up his, his friend Robert Bloch and said, you know, I'm working on this movie and I, and I thought I would use Jack the Ripper. What do you think about that? And Matheson said something in Bloch's tone of voice made me realize that Bloch's feelings almost would be hurt if, if I tried to do Jack the Ripper because mm. uh, Robert Bloch had done it so many times and so well. So, so Matheson discarded that idea. Of course, later, I believe it was used in the TV series, but Matheson decided, well, um, what, what's a, a, another monster I could use? How about a Civil War era surgeon who somehow is still alive in present day Seattle, because that's where Kolchak has landed after being thrown out of uh, Las Vegas. So uh, we, we'll do that. And, and Richard Anderson, another great character actor whom you've seen in everything, as well as the bionic woman and the $6 million man, mm -hmm. uh, played the part. And, and this time we did, uh, of course, Richard Anderson speaks throughout the movie. And this time we do learn a great deal about um, this character, unlike Janos Skorzeny, uh, we know uh, a great deal about um, uh, Anderson's character and his motivations. And, uh, and Curtis uh, remarked, uh, I, sometimes I would try to inject a bit of sympathy for the monster. We did that with Barnabas Collins and, and, uh, and uh, Dr. Jekyll and, and others. And so he, he said that he thought that he, uh, 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 he and, and Matheson were able to have some, show some pathos in, in, uh, in, in the character, as well as, of course, his, his uh, great evil in, in sacrificing lot people's lives in order to uh, gain blood for a serum that keeps him alive throughout the, the decades. Much of the film actually shot in Los Angeles, uh, but it does very skillfully incorporate the theme of the, the Seattle underground. I think that's one of the really cool things about this movie. Oh, yes. Um, uh, Dan Curtis's movies very often have a, a, a strong sense of place. Uh, you know, Las Vegas in the Night Stalker and, and um, um, the, the Carmel Monterey area in the Norlis tapes. Um, but um, yes, uh, even though uh, many of most of the interior scenes were on sets in Los Angeles and, and then the Bradbury building in Los Angeles was used also, uh, Curtis, of course, went up to Seattle to uh, uh, film scenes showing the monorail and, 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 and going up the elevator to the, the Space Needle on top. And you're right, the Seattle underground is very, very, uh, a very interesting place. Um, uh, years uh, ago, uh, Seattle wanted to raise 
the sea level, essentially, raised the level of the town, and so uh, w filled in the streets uh, around the existing buildings with gravel and dirt and, and uh, everything that covered up the first or second floors of the buildings. And so now the second or third floor of the buildings was street level because that's where the ground was. And uh, those lower levels now, the windows looked out onto dirt or nothing. Uh, and uh, those lower floors were forgotten or used for unsavory activities uh, <laughs> for many years until uh, the 1960s when uh, 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 tours began uh, running uh, through the Seattle underground. And when I was in Seattle uh, at a, uh, uh, a conference uh, in May of 2000, I toured the Seattle underground and the tour guide pointed out a love seat prop that was sitting somewhere and and said that that's left over from the movie the night strangler so wow at, at least uh by at least uh up to at least the year 2000 there was a little bit of the night strangler left in the seattle underground so if you're ever in seattle it, it's it's an interesting tour to go down into those um sub levels uh, and and look around and see what used to be there must have been pretty creepy going through that tour. Well, yes, uh, but, you know, I've seen so many horror movies and gone through uh, haunted houses in October, you know, the haunted house attractions and things that um, it, it was just fascinating to me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would I would be fascinated to do something like that, although I, I do tend to get a little bit claustrophobic. Do you, do you get that feeling in the Seattle Underground at all? Well, no, because um, we the group I was with, I was maybe 15 people, kept moving, you know, and yeah. you're right, there were no windows anywhere to see outside, but um, it would be like if, you know, if you went down into a basement and walked around. So, uh, so no, it, 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 was, it, it wasn't claustrophobic, um, for me at least. I don't yeah. know about others. Oh, sounds sounds very interesting. Uh, another interesting thing about this film, the fact that it was shot in only 12 days, which is pretty remarkable because of how well it turned out. I mean, it's just, to me, that's almost unfathomable. Yes. Well, Steven Spielberg shot Duel in 11 days, I think. But yeah, that, that was um, uh, normal for the ABC movie of the week. You know, it was on every Tuesday night and then began airing on Tuesday and Wednesday. So uh, the different production companies, Paramount and and others, had to um, to make the the movies fast, like uh, TV series. But um, Curtis was up to the challenge because he had directed two movies and and watched John Llewellyn Moxie and other directors, including uh, the great Leela Swift, who directed over eight hundred episodes of Dark Shadows and essentially mentored. Dan Curtis and helped him along as he learned the directing craft when he directed some Dark Shadows episodes and then when he went on to do House of Dark Shadows. So, uh, you know, what was so wonderful about the ABC movie of the week is that it, uh, at that point, you would see the, the golden age of Hollywood stars in the movie, like Ray Milland and 
Myrna Loy and uh, Joan Blondell and many others. But then you'd see uh, the current actors and rising stars, you know, Stephanie Powers and, and uh, people who were very current. And then uh, uh, Mark Hamill and others who were uh, playing small parts and were on the rise. So uh, it, it was a, a wonderful time to, to make movies for TV. And Curtis said that in one interview, he said, you know, it was a, a great period of time. You know, I just went in and, and talked to uh, the executive and said, hey, I have an idea for a story. Here it is. And the executive told me, OK, go make it. He said most of the scripts and the ideas that I came up with uh, turned out to, to get made. Not all of them, but uh, but many of them, because he said, uh, Curtis said it was easier to get a movie made back then. Uh, he said after that, um, it had to go through, you know, uh, committees and many different uh, executives and people had to give their input. And Curtis said it became watered down, hmm. he said. But, but he said, you know, when I was making, you know, the Night Strangler, the Norlis tapes, the great ice ripoff, all I had to do was come up with a, a great idea that was dramatic or funny or scary. And, and then we made it and it was, we made them fast and we made them cheap and it was a great period of time. Yeah. But obviously almost all of his productions, even though maybe cheap, uh, came out wonderfully. Yeah. They definitely overachieved. I've read that there were reports. There was going to be a third movie in this series uh, called The Night Killers. I believe yes. there was a a screenplay that was out there. It was going to be set in Honolulu. It ended up never being made. You've heard about that, right? Yes. Uh, it was a script about uh, uh, abducting uh, politicians and, and government leaders and, and replacing them with androids and that idea has been used, you know, since then. But at the time, it, it seemed fairly um, um, innovative. But um, in, uh, but Matheson's uh, uh, script uh, wasn't uh, produced because ABC decided after the success of The Night Strangler, well, uh, let's do a, a weekly se series. Let's don't do one more movie. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, let's do a, a weekly series. And neither Dan Curtis nor Richard Matheson was involved in the 20-episode uh, series, Cold Shack, The Night Stalker, because Dan Curtis, in perhaps uh, a rare moment of making a mistake in judgment, said, I don't see how it could be done. You know, hmm. we, we've done two great uh, movies with monsters, but I, I don't see how making a weekly series could be done. But obviously, now that we have seen uh, many, many years of the X-Files and Supernatural and a few other TV shows, we see that it can be done to come up with a monster of the week. So, uh, uh, so Curtis and Matheson bowed out of the series. But uh, the 2005 remake of Night Stalker that aired on ABC for a few episodes um, uh, did use Curtis as a consultant. That was one mm. of his last... Uh, on screen credits, it said consultant Dan Curtis. And there were two episodes of that uh, remake series that were very similar, almost remakes of The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler. Hmm. Um, but um, 
you're right, it, it just didn't uh, make it. It, it just uh, couldn't recapture what Darren McGavin and the others had done in those two movies and the subsequent TV series. Wow, that's really interesting to me. I thought Curtis was involved with the TV series, but you would obviously know better than me. Um, no involvement at all. Boy, that's... No, no. Yeah. He, he, neither he nor Matheson chose to continue with the TV series. And uh, by this time, too, you were talking about uh, Curtis's temperament and things like that. Uh, uh, Dan Curtis and Darren McGavin did not get along. They did not care for each other, probably because they were both such strong uh, personalities. So um, by Mm. the time they, that Curtis had made the two movies, Curtis probably wanted to move on uh, to other projects and work with other actors. But um, uh, that, that is, you know, uh, one factor that uh, McGavin didn't really care for Curtis and he probably didn't want to continue along that uh, avenue either. What did you think of the TV show, Jeff? Did you like it? Oh, yes, I did. I watched it back then and um, uh, liked it. Uh, there are several good episodes. Jimmy Sangster, who wrote many of the Hammer movies, wrote uh, one or two of them. And uh, um, Laura Parker, uh, Angelique on Dark Shadows, guest stars in a, another one in which she plays a witch again. So... Um, uh, most of the episodes were very good, some not as strong as others, perhaps. But uh, by the uh, the end of that season, Darren McGavin had grown tired of the TV series because I think he thought he was repeating himself. And he actually wanted to see his, the TV series go beyond just supernatural monsters every week. He said he wanted some episodes to be completely realistic in which a Kolchak battles corruption and, you know, crime and, hmm. and ferrets out those types of stories, kind of like Boris Karloff's thriller yeah. decades ago. Well, some episodes were just realistic crime dramas, but others were supernatural. I don't know whether that would have worked because after you've seen the two movies and seen 20 episodes of supernatural horror sci-fi menaces. I don't know whether people would have been satisfied with a, a much more tame uh, story of uh, he of Kolchak goes after a crooked politician or something, but yeah. maybe it would have worked. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Also airing on MeTV October 28th is Curtis's Trilogy of Terror, which came out originally in 1975. Uh, It features three stories, Julie, about a seemingly shy college professor. Uh, Then you have a story called Millicent and Therese about twin sisters who are actually diametrical opposites in their personalities. And then very famously, the story Amelia about a woman who has purchased a Zuni fetish doll. Uh, So here we have an anthology film, which uh, was wonderfully... uh, directed and overseen uh, by Curtis, but really is a testament to the acting range of Karen Black. Oh, yes. Karen Black should have been nominated for uh, or even won an Emmy for uh, uh, doing those four roles in this uh, great trilogy based on three stories by Richard Matheson, um, uh, uh, script two of which were scripted by another 
great friend of uh, Dan Curtis's, William F. Nolan, co uh, co-writer of Logan's Run and uh, and many sci-fi and, and, and noir novels. Um, uh, Matheson himself scripted the last story, the one we all remember most, uh, Amelia, the story about the Zuni doll. But um, yes, um, Trilogy of Terror shows up, you know, every once in a while. Um, it did on the Sci-Fi Channel and uh, elsewhere and on the Movies Network, Movies! Exclamation point which is a cable network that shows movies and has shown several of Dan Curtis's movies. And Sven Gulli showed Trilogy of Terror in October of 2022 and just last month, September 30th. So four weeks later, he's showing it again because it, it is often requested by us Sven Gulli uh, viewers. But um, it too, when it uh, came out uh, as one of the very last ABC movies of the week in March of 1975, bef just before the show, the series, I mean, ended in, in 75, it too uh, uh, got big ratings and was the talk of every schoolyard and office the next day. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, Karen Black uh, is wonderful in the parts uh, and... Uh, uh, that's what prompted Curtis to uh, uh, to go to San Francisco to the set of Family Plot and ask Karen Black to star in Burnt Offerings. Um, uh, her acting in, in all th three segments is terrific. And of course, if you've seen the movie, the first two uh, are very surprising in the way they turn out. And then that last one is just, uh, just uh, wild. Um, although, if you think about it, uh, we've seen something similar in Richard Matheson's Twilight Zone episode, The Invaders, the one with Agnes Moorhead as the, the woman living in a farmhouse somewhere and a, a tiny creature comes into her home. She, and she never says anything in that uh, whole episode. It's just Jerry Goldsmith's music and the horror of, of the, the invasion. Um, but, uh, that, that final segment, Amelia was based on Matheson's 1969 short story, Prey, P-R-E-Y, um, and, uh, is, is a real tour de force for Karen Black. Um, and, uh, of course the Zuni doll, which, uh, was a, a puppet that was created by the puppeteer who had made the Pillsbury Doughboy. And, um, Curtis was having trouble with, uh, well, how are we going to make the puppet move? Are, are we going to put a, a stick uh, up into the puppet and, and, and uh, raise the set, raise the floor so that somebody can be under the floor holding the stick and running it through a, a track? <laughs> and uh, so finally, um, uh, Curtis came up with the idea, well, I'll, I'll just put the camera on the floor. I'll put it on wheels very low to the ground as if this is the point of view of the Zuni doll and I'll, I'll move it very fast, you know, make the, 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 the wheels, uh, and the track move fast and, and, uh, show the, the, the Zuni doll's point of view as it chases Karen Black throughout the house yeah. with some, uh, some X, uh, I mean, some inserts of close-ups of the doll, you know, holding the knife and, and, uh, doing things like that. And so uh, it, it turned out uh, amazingly. And um, 
uh, you know, Karen Black said of all of the movies I've made, uh, people want to talk to me about Trilogy of Terror and Burnt Offerings more than any of the others. I was in Nashville and, and so many other great movies, but, but these are the ones that people remember me for. Yeah, the special effects are really ahead of their time. And you think about it, it's a precursor to what would occur about 10 or 12 years later with the Child's Play movie, uh, the first in the a series of Chucky films. I mean, that's that's very reminiscent of what we would see uh, with this Zuni doll. As I recall, Jeff, in, in reading your books, you had a chance to interview and, and spend a pretty good amount of time with Karen Black toward the end of her life. Um, am I, I remember remembering that right. You, you got to know her a little bit, right? No, no. I'm sorry to say I never met her. Oh, you did not? Uh, okay. Yes. You are thinking about uh, another guy, and I can't think of his name, but but he uh, 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 made uh, some some videos of, of uh, uh, Karen Black uh, near the end of her life, uh, talking to her and talking about her movies. But no, I'm sorry to say I never met Karen Black. I would have loved to have met her and, and talked about those two movies and the strange possession of Mrs. Oliver uh, and, and, and Nashville and a few others. But uh, no, uh, I, I gathered uh, information for my three books about Van Curtis. Uh, I gathered information on Karen Black from um, interviews with, uh, with her that I had seen, I uh, video interviews. There was one, I, I think, attached to the Trilogy of Terror DVD and and videos with others who knew her, but um, yeah, I would love I would have loved to have have met her. I think she was extremely underrated. I, I don't think she ever got credit. Um, maybe because sometimes she was saddled with material and movies that weren't always that great, but she always seemed to elevate the material. Now, in the case of Trilogy and of Terror, it's it they're great stories. They're well written, well directed. But in, in just about any film that she did, even if it's mediocre, I, I thought she brought it up higher. I, I really, she, for whatever reason, maybe she wasn't a, a traditional beauty. I'm not sure what it is. She just doesn't get the credit she deserves. Yes, she, uh, her, her looks are striking and, and uh, quite memorable. Really, no one looked like her, although she had a sister named Gail Brown, who starred on the soap opera Another World for many years. And um, uh, Gail Brown had a similar look and voice, but in many ways was quite different herself. But yes, Karen Black was unique. There was really no other Hollywood leading lady or character actress who was like her. And she could do everything. She could she could uh, uh, carry a movie, or she could play a, a character part. And one uh, and she said that one thing that interested her interested her in making Trilogy of Terror is in the second of the three stories, Millicent and Therese, uh, she would get to play, uh, you know, a, 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 a very plain spinster type of character with the the uh, thick lens glasses and her hair pulled back and no mm. makeup. She said she didn't wear makeup for that role and plain attire. Uh, so she she liked the idea of an acting challenge and, and doing things and, and making herself look different in whatever role she did. In Burnt Offering, she was pregnant while she made that 
uh, uh, movie and, and acted that quite strenuous role, but she said that the uh, costume designer, Ann Roth, who is still alive, um, uh, uh, gave her perfect costumes that, 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 that hid the, the pregnancy and allowed her to, uh, to move well. Oh, that's interesting. I did not know she was pregnant when she filmed that movie. Yes, she was. I think four or five months, uh, she wow. said in an interview, but, but you would never know. Anne Roth has gone on to uh, uh, win Oscars and, and design costumes for all kinds of movies. And, and she, she is a, has a cameo role in the Barbie movie. When uh, Barbie sits on the park bench, uh, park bench with the older lady and says hello to her, that's costume designer Anne Roth. Oh, interesting! I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So, um, I just have a question for you. Maybe you could um, just share some information to our listening audience about what motivated you to become a film historian. You have such an incredible background in the knowledge that you have on these movies. Um, what what was your motivation to dig into this and to start to share this with the world? I was and am a fanboy. <laughs> uh, I, you know, uh, loved comic books. I loved um, Dark Shadows. I loved horror movies. I loved time travel. I, I read science fiction, fantasy, and horror. I listened to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. I, I built the Aurora Monster Models, uh, you know, e everything. W whenever I am interested in something, I want to read, know, collect everything about it. Um, so um, Dark Shadows, of course, was, was one of my lifelong interests. I watched it between the ages of nine and 12. And then when it went off the air, I continued to read the Dark Shadows comic books and read the paperback novels by my friend Dan Ross, mm -hmm. uh, the Canadian author who wrote under his wife's name, Marilyn Ross. And uh, then I um, started writing for Dark Shadows fanzines when I was a teenager, uh, most notably Kathy Resch's fanzine, The World of Dark Shadows. But I, I, by between the mid-70s and the mid-1990s, I wrote for well over a dozen different Dark Shadows fanzines and, and then started writing some articles for movies, I mean, for magazines like Movie Club uh, and uh, uh, Scarlet Street and Mad About Movies and, and others. And, and that led to writing uh, chapters in multi-author books about loss of identity in horror movies or Peter Laurie and, or other subjects. And then finally, uh, I wrote the three books about producer-director Dan Curtis. Mm -hmm. In 2006, I was getting ready to write my PhD doctoral dissertation, and I was thinking about writing about film noir, but at that time, Dan Curtis died, and a wonderful website, uh, an, an e-newsletter, a weekly newsletter called Scoop, uh, contacted me and asked me to write Dan Curtis's obituary for Scoop, and I wrote the obituary essentially off the top of my head because I had done so much research about Curtis and, and seen all of his productions. And, and so that gave me the idea, well, you know, there have been so many books about film noir, but I should write my dissertation about Dan Curtis. He has just died and he needs to be recognized and documented. And then the dissertation I, I 
then reshaped and, and uh, uh, refined into my first book, The Television Horrors of Dan Curtis. <laughs> and then I went from there and each book uh, spotlights a, a different Curtis Productions, the, the first book, of course, his horror productions, and then I go into his uh, mysteries and crime dramas, and then his, uh, his epic productions, his adaptation of Dracula with Jack Palance, again, scripted by Matheson, and his, uh, his one and only Western, but one of his favorites of his movies, The Last Ride of the Dalton Gang, right. and of course, his two great World War II miniseries, The Winds of War and War and Remembrance. And his UFO miniseries, Intruders, They Are Among Us. Those are his epic productions, and those I write about in, his, in my book, Knights of Dan Curtis. And the other book is called House of Dan Curtis. And, of course, the first one, The Television Horrors of Dan Curtis. So I've all, I've, to answer your question, I've mm-hmm. always been very interested in movies, TV, popular culture, Music, comic books, radio. I, uh, I was a weekend radio announcer for many years. So whenever I'm interested in something, I want to, to learn everything about it. I, and then I want to, to write about it and, and, and share what I have learned. So it, it's just, that's just the way I am. And, and, and ask any fanboy or fangirl <laughs> and he or she will tell you the same story. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Thank you. And I, I know every time we have these conversations and with, with yourself included, my watch list keeps on growing for, for movies and films that I, I need to get on the ball with and really dig into and start watching just that I've learned so much from everybody. It's incredible. So thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you uh, for inviting me to your podcast two times. (laughs) Every episode of The Ghostly Gallery is really, really good. The Blackula episode and and all of them have been wonderful. Uh, But um, I'm thrilled to to, uh, be back talking with you again about Dan Curtis and his four dozen productions over the years. Oh, my goodness. Four dozen. Wow. (laughs) Jeff, we're not going to let you go just yet. We've got a few minutes remaining, but we certainly appreciate these great insights on the movies that Svengoolie will be highlighting, The Night Stalker, The Night Strangler, and Trilogy of Terror. want to get some quick thoughts on three other films from Dan Curtis. 1973, one of his lesser-known movies, and maybe it hasn't received the critical acclaim of some of the others. It's still pretty good, though, I think. The Norless Tapes. Oh, yes, it's very good. Um, uh it, it was, became almost mythic or legendary because it never came out on VHS and came out on DVD only in about 2006, I believe. So for many years, you know, it was hard to, to, to find. Occasionally Fox Movie Channel showed it. But um, yeah, the Norlis tapes um, uh, written by William F. Nolan, again, who uh, co-wrote Burnt Offerings with Curtis, um, is is in the Kolchakian vein, I believe, because it's uh, about a writer who uh, faces the supernatural. But it's it's very different. It's it's not the uh, the uh, uh, the bombastic uh, 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 loud uh, approach that the, the the two Night Stalker movies makes. It's it's much more low key and somber in that. Uh, the protagonist has, is, is missing, maybe mm. presumed dead, but he has, he has left behind 
many, many cassette tapes in which he uh, uh, relates to us the, the, these encounters with the supernatural. At first, he didn't believe in the supernatural, but when he began uh, finding evidence of monsters and supernatural menaces, he, he became very shaken. He became traumatized, uh, almost like PTSD, and withdrew to his home. And um, in this uh, TV movie, which was a pilot for a series that never made it, uh, mm. his literary agent comes to his home and starts listening to these tapes. And so we see David Norris, played by Roy Thinnis, um, in flashback as he works uh, on a case uh, with a, a woman played by Angie Dickinson, whose husband has seemingly come back from the dead or maybe comes back from the dead only at night. Hmm. And so it, once again, we're uh, enmeshed in, in this Night Stalker, Night Strangler idea of, of who is this supernatural menace who is draining blood and coming out at night. So, oh yes, it's very scary. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, a scene in which uh, uh, Norlis tries to uh, subdue the monster by hitting him with his car several times is, is uh, on par with that big fight scene in the Night Stalker. And, uh, and, and this one too, you know, has some, uh, some uh, familiar faces. Heard Hatfield from the picture of Dorian Gray shows up mm. later in, in life as a, a character uh, in the movie. And of course, Angie Dickinson, who is so wonderful and is still alive in her 90s. Yeah. And Robert Cobert does the music as he does for almost all of Dan Curtis's productions. And William F. Nolan does a terrific job in um, uh, making this a very serious, uh, somber, um, uh, 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 very uh, uh, horrifying um, look at Norlis's case, which perhaps sends him over the edge, and now we don't know where he is. William F. Nolan wrote a second script called The Return, but um, there was an actor, I mean, uh, there was a writer strike going on at the time, and uh, uh, no network seemed interested in, in picking up the script, mm. so nothing ever came of the Norlis tapes, but it is, it is uh, well remembered and revered by Curtis fans and uh, made-for-TV horror fans, just as these other two are. The following year, Curtis came out with his adaptation of Dracula. Uh, this was 1974, starring Jack Palance, whom you don't, you don't necessarily think of him as a, a vampire, although he often played villains. Somehow it, it works. Curtis and Palance make this work. Oh, yes. Uh, Jack Palance is one of the best Draculas. Um, Curtis said so. Uh, he, he called him the best. I don't think we can say that because Christopher Lee and Bela Lugosi and, and a few others exist. But yes, Jack Palance is one of the best Draculas. And, and Palance said that he was asked by other writers and directors to play Dracula several more times, but he always turned them down because Palance, the, the ultimate, you know, strong, tough guy from movies, admitted that playing Dracula scared him. He said playing that part really unnerved me because of Drac what Dracula was and what he could do. So I, I turned down other, other offers to play Dracula. But yeah, Drac I mean, Palance is terrific 
in the part. He he uh, shows off the 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 uh, strong and 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 uh, beastly nature of the vampire the way Janos Gorzani did. But as Dan Curtis likes to do, we we have some sympathy for Dracula because in in a, a plot angle lifted from Dark Shadows. Um, uh, Dracula meets a woman uh, who is he feels is the reincarnation of his lost love. Um, Richard Matheson adapted the script and uh, did a, a, a superb job and actually wrote a script for a three-hour movie hmm. for CBS. But then at the last minute, CBS, and another example of uh, mistaken judgment, uh, said, well, no, we don't want three hours, let's cut it to two hours. And so even though it was cut and some elements were left out, uh, Matheson had written the, the, the invasion of the rats and he had written the, the gold coins falling out of Dracula's garments and, and uh, how Dracula first looks old and then looks younger and uh, um, you know wrote many uh, extra parts that if they had been made in this three hour version, would have been the one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Dracula adaptations. But even at two hours, it still is one of the best um, and one of the most nearly faithful adaptations of Dracula. And um, um, great uh, 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 shot in, in Hungary, uh, filling in for uh, England. And so great cinematography and... Um, uh, uh, great atmosphere, uh, good uh, co-stars. So yeah, it, it's definitely worth seeing. And it has run on the movies network several times lately, along with House of Dark Shadows. So uh, Mark Dewidziak, who is a, an expert on uh, Matheson, Poe, Twain, The Night Stalker, Columbo, and other subjects, has, has published the entire three-hour script uh, by Matheson, and, and you can find that, and, and I quote uh, from the script in Knights of Dan Curtis. So yes, the three-hour script is fantastic, but the two-hour script is, is just as thrilling, and that was a wonderful adaptation of Dracula that bears watching and re-watching. Finally wanted to talk about my favorite Dan Curtis movie. You mentioned it earlier a couple of times, Burnt Offerings from 1976. It is terrific, but it's amazing that it got made and completed given the feelings between the actors. Oliver Reed and Betty Davis hated each other. Apparently, Betty Davis and Karen Black didn't really get along either. And yet, this beautiful film comes out with one of the most amazing endings to a horror film ever. Oh, yes. Um, Burnt Offerings is one of Dan Curtis's greatest, if not the greatest, of his horror productions because it is a theatrical film and he had much more time and uh, money and freedom to make the movie. It was filmed in August of 1975 at Dunsmuir House and Gardens in Oakland, California. And uh, it's the same house that you see the exterior only of in the Phantasm movies. And mm. then in uh, the James Bond movie of, 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 of A View to a Kill, you see the outside and the inside. And of course, in Burnt Offerings, you see fantastic uh, shots uh, outside and in all of the interior rooms and 
the 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 house it really is a a character in the movie because it, it's a great haunted house movie but if the house isn't haunted by ghosts the house is the monster the house itself feeds off of the energies of the people who live and die in the house so yes it's based on a, a great novel by robert marasco and uh, uh, an extremely faithful filming of that novel until the end, which is much more um, hard-hitting and, and cinematic than the more literary uh, impressionistic ending of the novel. But, uh, uh, you know, very, very faithful uh, to the book, even some of the same um, lines of dialogue. Um, uh, Dan Curtis and William F. Nolan co-wrote the uh, the script, um, and um, uh, yes, the ending is is just uh, uh, stunning and shocking. Although we have seen elements of it in other movies before, but Dan Curtis himself, in his usual um, you know opinionated way, said the the last fifteen minutes of this movie is the scariest thing you'll ever see, the scariest thing mm-hmm. ever made. That may or may not be true, but it is certainly one of the scariest ways to end a movie. And uh, the whole movie, it's a two-hour movie. It runs two hours, and it's a slow burn. It's a a slow buildup because the scares are spaced out. You know, you'll see some scenes of the family and see what's happening with the family and how ultimately the family is disintegrating because of the influence of the house. And then, uh, uh, you know, staggered throughout the movie uh, at different time period, time intervals, are these very, very scary scenes, uh, some with a, uh, a grinning chauffeur driver, uh, one especially of uh, something coming up the stairs toward Oliver Reed and Betty Davis, and a, a, a scary and disturbing scene at the swimming pool on mm. the grounds of the house. So yes, very, very well written, very well made. And uh, yes, it, it's true that Karen Black and Betty Davis did not care for each other at all, uh, but were able to work together. And perhaps that uh, you know, real life coolness and distance uh, helped energize their performances as uh, the characters became estranged. So uh, yes, Burnt Offerings is uh, uh, one of the best horror films of the 70s. It won the Saturn Award that year, beating The Omen. And uh, so it's definitely worth seeing. Uh, And uh, it, it runs on movies, exclamation point, and some other cable channels, the Sci Fi Channel and others from time to time, and, and it, it ran uh, on NBC a couple of years after it was in the movie theater in October of 1976, and for one week was the number one movie in America. Hmm. So, yes, uh, 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 film historians and critics, and of course Dan Curtis fans, fondly remember Burnt Offerings, and the movie holds up very well even today. Uh, it, it, it definitely is a 70s movie in all of the wonderful senses of that meaning but it doesn't it's not really dated you know you don't see a lot of 70s clothes that might be distracting it's 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 just a a fantastic story of what happens to this family of four 
when they uh, are living in and become victimized this house. Very well said, Jeff Thompson. We thank you once again for being uh, our first repeat guest here on the Ghostly Gallery podcast. Again, Jeff's books are The Television Horrors of Dan Curtis, House of Dan Curtis, Knights of Dan Curtis. They're all terrific. Uh, Make sure you get the updated, revised versions of each of those books. Dr. Thompson, thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Tracy and Bruce. I really enjoyed talking with you again, and uh, I feel like we're just now getting started. I, I really get going on uh, these talks, <laughs> and uh, by the time we are ready to end, I'm ready to talk for another couple of hours. So <laughs> thank you for giving me this wonderful opportunity. Uh, thank you, Jeff. This has been so phenomenal, so phenomenal. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Tracy Asteria, for uh, being with us as well over this past hour plus. We want to thank all of our listeners for joining us in this Museum of the Macabre, and we hope to have you join us once again right here in the Ghostly Gallery.